Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is a Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, audience development, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com slash amopodcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. My guest this week is Sherelle Dorsey, the founder and publisher of The Pluck, a media company focused on the black innovation economy. During this 50-minute conversation, we talked about how she got started, why she's so outspoken about paying freelancers quickly, why they don't offer a monthly subscription, and so much more. I hope you enjoy our discussion. So I've been following you on Twitter now for a while, but this is the first chance you and I are getting to have an actual conversation. So I'd like to start from square one. Who are you and how did you find your way to working in media? That's such a great question. Um, I like to describe myself um, as a data journalist, as someone who is just naturally curious about the state of the world and particularly how innovation um, can come from anywhere. And I'm wholly interested in those who are coming from backgrounds that aren't necessarily traditional and finding ways to create, build, support, um, and develop these innovation hubs that are sort of emerging out of the rubble. Um, And I came into media kind of happenstance. I was at first working in fashion and in beauty from a marketing and PR standpoint and just loved to tell the stories and examine what was happening in the world around me that was kind of obscure, kind of off the beaten path, um, really looking at these outliers. And so I, I made the transition slowly just by freelancing on the side um, as I was working for different tech startups. I was freelancing on the side and talking about the startups I was finding in places like uh, Charlotte or a Kentucky or what have you, um, and starting to map these trends of more founders of color getting access to capital and building these really unique companies that were also providing jobs and sort of going against the grain in the status quo by saying, hey, I'm going to opt in to building something from the ground up um, and, and not necessarily kind of going the route of just working for a company and and potentially just not being seen for my contributions. Um, and so took that, that space of freelancing and eventually turned it into um, deciding to go full throttle in creating a publication that first started off just as a newsletter um, that talked about what black and brown founders were creating um, against the world. So I, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, but, but I think too, just all of my life experiences really helped bring me to this point. And so I want to spend some time talking about the thesis behind the plug. And your Twitter banner image says you are contextualizing the black innovation economy. What does that mean And why did you feel there was an opportunity with this publication with a specific target audience? Absolutely. I think that when we look traditionally at media, particularly within business and technology, the conversations and stories are very disparate when it comes to folks of color or women or other underrepresented folks being covered. There's either a sense of disparity, it's either far and few between, 
or there is sort of this tokenized, magical kind of black or brown person narrative that may happen a handful of times out of all of the coverage that traditionally happens within media. And I grew up in Seattle and I took um, programming and um, various coding classes and networking administration classes within a program that I was a part of called the Technology Access Foundation in high school. And I worked at Microsoft during the summers as an intern. And all of my instructors, all of my mentors happened to be folks of color or women. And so when I got into the professional work environment and I was following tech because I just had a kind of a natural interest in it and followed business, all of the conversations and the centering were around white guys and what they were building. It was very rarely looking at women or other folks of color who were also doing just as dynamic things. Maybe their companies weren't as large and as big, but they were very influential. And so I think for for me, um, being able to contextualize what was going on, it was going above and beyond, not just saying that this person exists, but giving just as much rigor, rigor analysis and attention to examining the work, examining the trends around the work, examining the trends around um, what this meant um, on the greater scale and in scope for um, a community, particularly if they were building outside of Silicon Valley. I wanted to see the, 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 the prowess of coverage. And since I didn't see that in the world of media that I was accustomed to consuming, I decided, well, let me see if I can try to cover this in a unique way. And is there a space for us to do this smartly and also make people care about this person, not just being a person of color or coming from a, a, a background that is not traditional, uh, quote unquote, but let's talk about their work and examine their work and examine why that work matters. And so I didn't know initially if this was something that people would care about or, or would, would actually work as a potential and viable business model. But thus far, it has been pretty substantial in terms of what we've been able to cover, the databases we've been able to build. Um, and you know, I think just, just coming to the space and wanting it to be more than just surface level discussions, we've built a pretty substantial and unique community, I think, for a time such as this, as business leaders are really starting to question and understand how does diversity, inclusion, and belonging happen within business and within our teams, and how do we make it a, a, a true priority? And so um, I think we were early. I think we're finally kind of getting caught up here, or others are kind of catching up to us. Um, but I knew that I knew that what was in the marketplace, um, so to speak, was unsatisfactory. It was unsatisfactory. And um, I believe that a lot of main 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 newsrooms were doing us a disservice. And I also felt that um, our traditional black media publications just did not have the resources or the rigor to cover the beat substantially. So we'll talk more about the specifics in a little bit, but you do have a paid membership. Who is the customer of that product? And is it a purchase they're making personally or professionally? And to expand on that, are they mostly small startups or larger enterprises? 
So we're getting a mix of large enterprises, of municipalities, specifically those that are making decisions around how to create the workforce of the future and how does that look from an equity lens or an inclusion lens. We have researchers, um, both from academic environments as well as from professional environments that are studying and building products and solutions specifically related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, We have other reporters who are leveraging our databases to look for Black roboticists or Black, you know, researchers in artificial intelligence and really expanding their pool and network of expert sources. Um, Because nine times out of 10, when we see quotes taking place, they're usually from men and, of course, white men. So there has been sort of a nuanced customer base that's been part of our membership, which is annual as well as quarterly and includes exclusive access to some of our data libraries, um, as well as to our exclusive reporting, as well as uh, some of our our membership call conversations where community is able to come together and hear a synthesis on latest research related to Black wealth creation, Black businesses, what have you, um, or an innovative leader that's helping to map out trends um, that's related to the industries in which their business is is starting to gain some significant traction. Um, and and that, that, that really is our model and our, our customer base. When I, you know, to be honest with you, when I started the newsletter, I just thought it would be other interested black techies and nerds, and maybe just people who were generally interested in the startup ecosystem. Um, and then that continued to expand as we continue to be much more data driven and seeing how decision makers in these spaces wanted more access to to resources to help them think more critically um, about how they're approaching startups. Um, I think the other, the other uh, kind of demographic there that I did not mention is we have VC firms who from day one have subscribed and have um, leveraged the newsletter to find deal flow. Um, there's never a week where I don't have a founder say, hey, you know, you had made mention of our company and we received, you know, an outreach from um, from a firm. So uh, it's it's pretty multifaceted in that sense. And as you think about the content strategy for the plug, what are the types of stories that you do run? And conversely, what are ones that simply don't fit? So the kinds of stories that we run, um, we try to be very thoughtful from things like, of course, your traditional, this company has raised X amount of dollars and here's sort of how they are looking to grow. Um, We try to run critical pieces, um, like for instance, during the summer, during the protests and racial uprisings um, and in those discussions following the murder of several Black people by police officers in various capacities, you know, we started tracking um, and building out databases and uh, data visualizations on tech companies that publicly made commitments to um, denouncing racial injustice. Um, And then when you kind of took a look at their internal culture breakdown, we didn't see a ton of representation um, across the board from employee side to leadership side. So a sense of kind of accountability um, in in reporting as well. And so um, the kind of stories we try to stay away from are just kind of generally fluff pieces around people that, oh, you know, there's kind of that like, oh, change the game. Um, we try to stay away from 
disparity journalism. So things that only talk about Black people being in poverty or not having resources or not having um, enough capital. Um, I think a lot of those stories have been told ad nauseum. And so we want to focus on the trends that are not centered on just whiteness and um, and deprivation. We want to be very future forward thinking about what's possible, um, who's gaining ground, why it's significant, and how it impacts us all. So when you started, like most of us who do a newsletter, it was just you doing it on your own. Now you have a team working on the plug. Can you talk about the team composition of the company? And then to expand on that, you're rightfully very vocal on Twitter about paying your freelancers fairly and quickly. In your mind, at what point does it make sense to make a full-time role out of work that a freelancer was doing? That's such a great question. Um, I graduated in the heart of the recession about 10 years ago, and I remember a lot of those full-time roles that you know came with benefits and things like that disappearing in favor of freelancing and sort of gig economy, uh, which I, I think at the time we didn't really call it that. Um, but it was always a hustle. And, you know, as someone who freelanced, uh, you know, sort of following my first job layoff during the recession, I know how much of a hustle it is. And so paying reporters and journalists and, and freelancers on time matters a great deal to me because I know what it's like to not be paid on time. And yet you still have to, to make ends meet. And so that that was one of the kind of values and ethos I wanted to bring into the company. Um, you know, early on, you know, with experimenting and building your startup, you know, you are you are in that experimental phase. You're trying to figure out if people want to purchase what you're selling, um, if you can gain enough traction to build an actual business and make it sustainable. And so you have to be very strategic about where those dollars go. And so in the beginning, it has been being able to leverage others from a contract perspective um, and people who have, you know, other maybe full-time jobs or they are, are consulting on the side, um, but being very clear about the distinction of how this person contributes to the business. I still think that, you know, freelancers provide a tremendous value and service and finding and tapping talent and being able to work with them um, as you grow helps you to really identify Number one, how to be a better leader, how to be a better manager, um, and then also really defining like what kind of level of, of, of work, you know, do we expect um, in terms of delivering a, a strong product and a strong brand. And as we've grown and as I've been able to raise a bit more funding, bringing in talent for me um, has really been about where do I want to get to and how do I expand capacity? And so... We made our first time full, full-time offer and um, hire who will come on in a few weeks to help lead editorial. Um, and that will free me up to continue to expand the team and to invest in some areas that are very critical to our work, like research and just general growth. And so I think making that choice is different for every entrepreneur. Um, I think that it comes from really understanding um, your your cash flow, understanding you know what is needed um, from a from a capital raising standpoint, um, and just kind of knowing when you when you have to begin delegating because the workload's too much and you do not want to compromise the quality of what you're producing. 
So let's jump into the actual business because the plug is multi multifaceted and I want to explore how each piece contributes to the overall business. So first, and we've talked about this, you have the pro membership, which costs $150 a year or $50 a quarter. Can you talk about in specific detail what this product entails? And then, because I'm very intrigued with the concept of quarterly and yearly pricing versus monthly pricing, how you came up with that strategy and pricing model. It's all been very experimental. Um, I knew that I wanted to charge a premium for our work because I believe that it is high quality. I, you know, there was like the, the, the early 2010s or, or maybe even before where we got into this blog at accessible all the time everywhere. And I definitely believe in, in journalism as a public service. Um, and I think once we get into niche spaces, niche spaces, and we are looking at creating value for audiences that go and in turn deliver value for their companies, um, that we have to build a business case, especially around um, the work and research of what's happening in, in Black tech um, and really honoring, I think, um, a, a, a group of individuals who traditionally have not, um, you know, been seen as critical to the growth of, of, uh, of the economy um, overall. And so in terms of pricing, um, I, I really looked at others' models. I, I looked at my subscriptions and who I subscribe to and what those rates were. I looked at the value of those particular um, rates and decided, I think, you know, $150 um, is pretty standard. And along with that particular package, there's access to our data libraries. There's access to um, our exclusive stories that are under paywall and just for members. And each month we have a call with members and uh, someone within industry that can help us synthesize either new new um, reports, new analytics, um, or even just trends in their particular field to help us just become better thinkers about our work um, or our investments. And also to showcase and highlight different Black professionals and experts uh, within the innovation economy that we should also be following their work because it's critical to um, kind of those next steps and spaces of, of where we're headed. So I decided to differentiate between the quarterly, the annually, the annual, uh, specifically from the monthly, because we did start off with a monthly subscription. And I think that just the challenge with that, I think it doesn't foster a true sense of commitment um, or investment. I think that everyone has, you know, from music streaming services to, um, you know, all kinds of different subscription boxes, things like that. There's kind of this monthly this monthly cadence um, that we've all become accustomed to, but I don't think it breeds loyalty. And I think as well, when we looked at reducing churn rate, um, you know, sometimes people's credit cards declined or what have you, or they forgot that they had, you know, had the charge. It was easier to ask up front, like, hey, you know, rock with us for three months or rock with us for a year and really get invested. Um, and I think that, you know, again, Continuing to put a value and a premium on the work that we're doing, um, I think is is continuing this kind of brand promise of, you know, we are we are going to deeply cover what's happening in Black innovation, and, and we want you along for the ride. So, um, so make that commitment, you know, annually or quarterly. Um, quarterly, I think, is a great way to really test out 
all the features. It gives you an opportunity to have at least three solid months of, of great discussions and conversations. Um, and as we kind of move forward, we'll build more opportunity for community building. And so um, I think overall, the, the experience, you can't really get a, a solid experience in just one month. So can you expand a bit on what's included in the data library? Because at least in the B2B space, it's common for data subscriptions to cost in the four figures per year but you're including that in the pro membership. Have you thought about creating a more robust and premium price data business? Absolutely. And we're going to be rolling out some new software and insights tools um, at the top of Q1 to really capture that part um, of our audience. And so the data libraries for us are um, very kind of standard. They're really part of what our reporting process has been for specific stories. Things like directories, like we created the first database of Black-owned co-working spaces, measuring this rise of independent work and um, buildings dedicated specifically to innovation. And so being able to provide that as a resource for our um, for our audience and for our readers was super paramount. And then we have databases again on things like who are the top black researchers in artificial intelligence. Um, again, you know, converting some of the background work um, that has been that was traditionally reserved for our stories and making that available to our members. Um, we think we just offered something very unique there. Um, and so there there are several different kind of sectors that we've looked at, um, even just a rundown of black CIOs to uh, black women who have whose uh, tech companies have been acquired um, or they've had some sort of liquidity event. Um, you know, kind of mapping those things that have powered our reporting and our data visualization, um, sharing across social media. And so, again, you know, it was going from a test and a resource that we already had on the back end and deciding to um, to, to make it available um, as part of that premium tier. We wanted to make it attractive and kind of see how will this stuff be used? Um, how will our folks feel, feel that it's valued? And then how do we, again, upsell them as we move towards a more enterprise level um, resource. So it's definitely on the horizon and um, we've, we've kind of provided, I think some, some significant resources. And now um, as we move forward, we will have more of a, a premium premium tier <laughs> to our, to our, um, to our current offering. You also have an events business uh, with the major product being the plug live summit. Can you talk about the structure of that event and the business model vis-a-vis ticket sales and sponsorship? And then how have you had to evolve this event with us living in a COVID world? The events business is definitely a very precarious one. I think that for every media operator and just event planner overall, you know, this pandemic definitely um, forced us to pivot uh, very significantly. We hosted our first live summit back in February, and that was right before everything kind of got shut down. And so I was very, we were very fortuitous in terms of being able to host that one in person in New York city. Um, and then just, you know, just about a week or so after is when, um, the world kind of got set on fire. And so as you can imagine, it was part of our 2021, excuse me, our 2020 strategy to start bringing in event revenue and have these intimate kind of coast to coast, Um, sit downs with researchers, with entrepreneurs, with investors, and to talk about and start to um, project into the future uh, what the needs and the um, sort of business climate was going to look like for black and brown founders. 
And so as we approached our Q4 summit um, from a virtual context, we knew that we just had to offer something um, different and much more robust, but it also allowed us to reach a larger audience um, as well for folks who would not necessarily fly out to New York or to San Francisco to be part of the conversation. So from a ticket sales and a sponsorship standpoint, the model still stayed the same. Um, It was probably a bit more work to kind of cut through the noise of all the events that were taking place around the same time. And just generally, I think that virtual events are, are just a challenge as people become more burnt out by kind of always being online. And so as I look ahead and envision what events look like for us in the future, um, I'll be I'll be very frank. I'm not exactly sure how we um, make this feel as as um, as intimate as we initially designed for in person. Um, I think the pivoting has been well. I, I think that you know being able to bring a protection team on and for all the um, the platform evolution that's happened um, around video conferencing has greatly and drastically improved. But we're still not able to sit in the same room together. Um, so again, looking ahead into 2021, it's what can we offer or provide that provides a a, a great experience, um, dogged information, and also um, builds community. Um, but again, doesn't compromise on safety or quality. And so um, still kind of figuring that part out and kind of hyper-focusing um, more so on how do we continue to ramp up and build um, high-quality work in general. Um, and then maybe, you know, if, if we're not able to meet from an events perspective, how do we still foster um, a deep community that can um, connect and learn from each other? You recently ran a four-episode podcast called The Clark Street Project. Can you talk about the strategy behind creating this series? And specifically what I mean is, was it to drive additional memberships, or did you slash do you view this as something that can become a more robust multimedia project, ideally perhaps with a Netflix or a partner like that? Those are great questions. Um, I think that with everything that we've done at The Plug and even in the way in which I started The Plug, it was really about experimentation. And um, we got a tremendous grant opportunity from the News Integrity Initiative that allowed us to to have a sense of experimentation. Um, you know, part of my ethos, um, again, is, is really documenting the contributions of um, of Black entrepreneurship within this country. And the Clark Street Project deeply explores um, how Black and Brown journalists um, have made major contributions in terms of helping to document um, early stage Black entrepreneurs, specifically during times where mainstream newsrooms weren't covered, covering them uh, at all. I mean, from AfroLink in the 1990s, uh, who had been funded by AOL, um, you know, up until you know, up until kind of current time when we're looking at uh, platforms like Black Tech Twitter um, and sort of the connectivity of, of Black techies uh, connecting online. And so in terms of the, the overall strategy, there was sort of an education component um, to also test out the ways in which we could further um, partnerships and develop additional media assets um, for sponsors that are, you know, that were, that were much more kind of multimedia in breadth and not just the newsletter and not just the website um, or a, an online event, but exploring a, another sort of 
avenue um, to provide visibility to partners. And as I look forward at, um, you know, embarking on a season two, there's definitely some of the larger name platforms that, you know, we want to, um, that we want to have um, connection with um, as this content continues to develop. Um, but, you know, quite honestly, it's all been a learning experience because, building the podcast was initially supposed to be set, um, you know, physically in New York city. And so we had to quickly pivot and I had to order a microphone and I had to kind of soundproof my space and, um, conduct interviews, you know, virtually, you know, versus in person. Um, so, so things kind of got thwarted on that end, but I think overall the experiment, um, did let us know that, folks were interested in what we were creating and that this could be a potential brand extension um, of our overall content. You mentioned sponsorship. On the advertising side, can you talk through the various opportunities you provide partners? Because there are many listed on the website from sponsored research, newsletter sponsorships, member calls, and then how do you price those? So that's such a great question. Um, There are different kinds of opportunities, even down to content sponsorships. So um, particularly with foundations that are invested in journalism and and news coverage that is very much geared towards communities of color, um, we've been able to build out those relationships and really focus on kind of a a series um, of, of topics, be it future of work or ecosystem development or what have you. In terms of how we price those things, I know traditionally there's kind of been that CPM model. Um, Because we're niche and because we are looking less for volume and much more for, you know, our kind of our our people um, that are really looking for this content, we knew that it would be a losing game for us to solely focus on CPM. Um, And so we will provide essentially package deals based on value and um, general visibility, and also um, really establishing metrics around conversion. So we've traditionally um, partnered with companies that were looking to recruit people into maybe their accelerator programs or to apply for certain funding opportunities, um, much more sort of action-driven um action-driven calls to action that were less about just click to my site and view my product and more so of, you know, you sort of are the product as an audience member and we want you to come into the fold of the programs that we've established or that we're pulling together. Um, So the use case is vastly different there. And so we try to price on um, the value that we deliver um, as well as knowing our, our audience and segmenting who subscribes um, to know exactly what it is that they're looking for um, when they subscribe and they read the plug and they read about our partners. What is the technology stack that powers the plug from CMS to membership software to ESP and anything else that I might be missing? Yeah, I used to have a running list of all of the tools that we used because um, there's so much I think that also can be integrated and and kind of simplified a bit more. Um, There are a couple of tools that you use for various reasons. Um, I think just, yeah, from the kind of the the side that powers the plug um, from WordPress to MailChimp um, to Memberful, 
um, you know, those are kind of their are kind of top tier things. And then on the back office side of things, I mean, we're using Asana for project management, of course, things like Dropbox, um, as well as, um, you know, Wave and Salesforce for um, analytics and just kind of general reporting and creating systems as, as our, our sponsors sort of reach out for inquiries and things like that. Um, you know, I want to say, I always try to keep it as simple as possible, but the more that like we do, the more kind of complexities we have to add. Um, but we, we do use a host of, um, software as a service platforms, um, to build our work. And then I think just from a general journalistic standpoint, um, what's been great has been, you know, social media and just the ability to, to find stories and scoops, especially since we're not able to be face to face from a tech conference standpoint. Um, so even being able to use things like Typeform to solicit new startups, um, who are, who are, who are growing, who can share with us kind of their, just here's what we're doing. Um, here's where we're coming from. And, you know, being able to filter that into, um, our startups to watch uh, series and our weekly briefing that we send out via MailChimp. Um, I think it's, 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 it's really kind of makes things seamless for the most part. You mentioned social media. When you are thinking about audience development at the plug, what tactics and strategies are you focused on specifically? I have a very distinctive personal brand that is, I think, highly tied to the plug. Um, I think that can sometimes either hinder or help um, a, a brand, but for the most part, I think that um, I, I respect being a journalist first. And so when I'm working on stories or a team is working on stories, being able to leverage social media to connect with people um, quickly, but then also to be able to be just to be able to discover maybe things that may have initially been outside of um, my scope or visibility is super important. So take, for instance, um, again, the database we built following all the tech statements, um, following the protest over the summer. Um, you know, I asked a question on Twitter, like, hey, you know, here's, and, and I put out our initial data set and I said, hey, here's who we've we found in terms of brands that are making public statements. Can you tag additional ones? Um, and I mean, just inbox DMs flooded, um, you know, folks of saying, hey, you know, my company just made a statement or here's a screenshot of an internal letter. I mean, it helps us to truly do our reporting and I think also to help people um, feel seen and feel connected um, to the work that we're doing. And, you know, quite quite frankly, I think I see folks like a ProPublica, um, you know, do this quite a bit in terms of, hey, we're working on this this kind of story. You know, if, if this is your experience, you know, please hit us up. Um, and, and I think that like having some of that sort of aggregated um, audience input helps people feel connected um, and, and knowing that, um, you know, they get to play a role in helping to give you information and access to information. And so um, that I really value social media for. Um, and I also like to use it to address um, to address issues within the startup ecosystem as a whole, um, the way that I think black and brown entrepreneurs are kind of constantly, um, you know, placed at a disadvantage based on very arbitrary barriers that at this point just, just seem very unnecessary. Um, so I like to have those kinds of conversations, like why are we still having these conversations? It's making us inefficient and unproductive. Um, I also like to share, um, share on our reporting and sort of why we've done stories the way that we've done um, across, you know, that 
that be be Twitter, um, Instagram, or even LinkedIn, um, and just really help to expose people that normally wouldn't necessarily be checking for the plug or even checking for me, you know, a way to engage and to learn. Um, I try to teach and educate um, around topics specifically related to um, to, to race and, and communities that are typically not seen as spaces for innovation, but very much are. Um, and so I try to bring that to the forefront because, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, the idea that the kind of coverage that black and brown and female startups have received in the past has been kind of this like, hey, this is such an anomaly and this is so great and pat on the back versus I'm around smart dogged, very well-educated, very well-trained experts all the time that just happened to come from various degrees of backgrounds. And because we're not as visible in the media as having normal, regular lives, we have to be overly emotive and overly represent ourselves, our families, our communities online to remind people that we're not stupid. (laughs) And we also have opinions about these spaces. Oh, and by the way, like we did a survey of um, Black-owned tech companies and the kinds of software products that they use. And as I mentioned, I'm using products like WordPress. I'm using products like Asana. I'm using, you know, Wave um, for sending invoices and what have you. The reality is when we think about um, the the number of dollars that are contributed to um, these big tech companies, um, you know, there there really is an economy um, out of the black tech startup ecosystem that cannot be ignored, um, particularly when it comes to workforce representation. Because if I'm pumping my money into Google and G Suite, I want to know that Google has a commitment to hiring um, and and treating well. Um, you know, folks of color. And um, I want to know that they're making commitments to um, ensuring that college students um, from all kinds of backgrounds have access to get jobs there. Um, Because if I'm giving them $200 a month, you know, in order to manage my email in some of my domains, you know, surely, um, surely I want to know that this is a company that I'm making an investment in that's making an investment, um, in the, in the values that I care about. So digging into a little bit more on the audience development tactics, the plug doesn't put all of its content behind the paid membership. So it's not a true hard paywall. How do you find a balance between giving your paid members enough exclusive value while also having enough content that can go wide and act as a top of the funnel for you. We try to base that on the kinds of content partnerships we develop. So, um, for instance, we have um, a really great partnership with the Kaufman Foundation, which um, invests in entrepreneurship education and ecosystems. And so the work that we do in partnership with them or even an organization like Venture Philanthropy Firm, new profit, um, which we did a future of work series with them. Those things are generally open to the public. Essentially they've been paid for in advance and they have a general public interest versus we try to differentiate the content that um, we're delivering specifically to our members, um, which is much more um, kind of a, of a depth of, of examination um, of a, a particular company or a particular idea uh, surrounding a particular industry and some advances within maybe a black tech startup or a firm or what have you. Um, and so, you know, sometimes sometimes there are things that are just generally within the public interest um, that, that really makes sense to unlock 
um, for readers to to be able to view and have access to. Um, but we do try to ensure that some of the deeper dives um, and more long form are reserved for our paid members. So thinking about the plug over the next few years, do you believe that it will look materially different than it is today? Are there new product ideas that you're thinking about launching or new streams of revenue that you'd like to tap into? Ultimately, where do you go from here? I think that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I would consider us to be almost a new business every six months. Um, I, I definitely believe that as we learn and grow, get access to more capital, um, our revenue increases, I'm able to make some deep investments um, in people as well as systems and operations that allow us to become much more efficient. Um, from a from a general growth and vision perspective, um, right now we are exclusively reporting in the U.S. And so I see us having more of a, an international platform, um, being able to work with research researchers as well as journalists um, in up and coming black tech hubs all over the world, from Brazil to Nigeria to um, the Caribbean, in these spaces that have um, pretty tremendous. Um, activity um, and it have seen much more investment from large firms um, in terms of growing those ecosystems. And so I think from a from a, a journalistic and editorial perspective, definitely growth um, across the verticals that we'll be covering. And then, you know, we are in the process of, of launching some software and some insights tools that will specifically be geared towards enterprise clients. And so, you know, uh, definitely from a product standpoint, there will definitely be extension there, an opportunity for us to really provide, um, you know, deeply, deeply developed research reports that will be productized themselves, um, that will be outside of pro membership, but be a next kind of tier tier above um, for industry to really take advantage of. Um, and beyond that, I would love to, again, you know, have events, but I, I think structuring them beyond a conference is kind of where I want to get creative and, and become uh, much more thoughtful in terms of application. Uh, my goal is not to just kind of provide the sense of um, resource and information for information's sake, but to provide um, a utility um, for the kinds of clients and customers that are going to be making pretty deep decisions um, specifically related to how inclusivity um, really drives their business moving forward. So um, so I, I think we have kind of a loose roadmap, but if I've learned anything this year in a pandemic, um, it is to be flexible and be nimble and being able to be adaptive, um, you know, because we don't know what's going to happen in the world. But we definitely have some strategic frameworks around really expanding uh, research content and monetizing, uh, monetizing our insights and our reports. So before we move to the last part of the show, I want to reference something that 2PM's Webb Smith wrote about you. And I quote, though every technology firm now wants to hire her away from her idea turned creation, I should suspect she will have more impact independently, end quote. Because you are a big part of the Plugs brand, how do you think about that balance between everyone wanting your time, including me, and building a media company that takes so much of your focus? I definitely try to work to be judicious with our time. I think anything that allows us to talk about how, what we're building and how is beneficial to people discovering us as well as learning more about us. Uh, when it comes to some of the offers that I've received, um, you know, I think that 
you know, sometimes I, I have the conversation because I think it's, it's number one, it's flattering. Um, and number two, because I know that I always know someone else that would be a really strong fit. And I like the ability to provide, um, another resource for someone else. Um, I've had to be very, um, intentional about the way that I spend my time now, especially as we continue to grow and, um, do some fundraising and, um, and, and really think about like where we're heading and and how we need to get there. And so I think, you know, there's, there's kind of a case by case basis, um, to create that sense of filtering of, you know, what's going to push the brand forward, um, versus what is kind of just nice to do. Um, you know, as you can imagine, you know, over the summer, there was, there was always a request for, can you speak to us about this? Can we talk about this? Um, and there's kind of this propensity for people to reach out to want to talk about diversity. Um, and that's kind of the only thing that people tap you for <laughs> when you're a person of color, when you're a woman, it's always like, can you speak on our, you know, our, our, our panel about being a woman in tech or being a woman in journalism? And, you know, it's, and, and I don't think there's necessarily a, a harmful intention around that, but I do think that we have to evolve the conversation. So when I can talk about the business that I'm building, or I can talk about what I'm learning in the process, um, I try to jump at those opportunities, um, especially when I think that, you know, it, it prov- it's going to provide and do justice to, um, to what we're building and, and, and why this is significant as we move into the future. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm even just, I've even just kind of kind of cut down my, my, um, my meeting days to just twice a week, um, so that I can focus, um, on the other days of the week, um, specifically on growing the business. I want to end with the same two questions I ask everyone on this show. Looking at your media career, what is a mistake that you made and what did you learn from it that made you better professionally? Gosh, I feel like, you know, building anything from the ground up, there's so many mistakes. I think there's um, mistakes around just kind of bringing on um, talent, uh, even be it freelance, uh, because, you know, you only have so many resources. And so you kind of can only bring on the best that you can afford, even if it's not the best fit. Um, I think as a leader in general, um, you know, sort of having to be much more, um, much more polished, even in, in the way that I present, even on social media. Um, I've definitely had those moments where I've had Twitter rants and realizing that sometimes, you know, you can alienate people, um, by not being very careful on how you're delivering information. And if the goal is to bring new ideas forward and to build community and to build um, a reservoir of talented people within your corner in which to siphon uh, information about who's doing what. Um, I can't be, you know, I can't be the angry black woman on Twitter. (laughs) Sometimes I can be angry when things just deserve that kind of vitriol, um, especially when we're talking about, um, you know, the murder of of folks. And then you kind of, you know, you go into like, hey, you know, police murdered another black man. and, And yet I have to interview this person or I have to hop on this conference call and, and still work, um, you know, while still being deeply emotionally disturbed. Um, and, and I think, you know, just in terms of, um, having very early convictions about what venture capital is and isn't, um, I think that, you know, for me, I was very anti raising money because I did not want to, 
um, I didn't want to dilute the experience of what journalism should be. And I didn't want to dilute the experience of, um, of, of building slow and intentionally and, and wanting to really test out what we were building first. And I, and I think that some of those kind of early convictions, um, kind of stunted my ability to really see how money is used as a tool and how building the right relationships, um, within VC can actually be used to, to progress, you know, what, what the mission is and what the, what the, what the, um, overall goal is. Um, and I, and, and quite honestly, I plan to continue to make more mistakes. I think that it has be- made me a better leader. I think that, you know, out of the frustration of not getting it right on the first time, um, you know, has also helped me to be much more humble in terms of building a strong network of experts and people who have run this road before that I'm able to consult with and reach out to and learn from, um, even if it is just from afar. And so I'm grateful for those particular mistakes, but, um, I think overall they're, they're making me a stronger leader and helping me to build a stronger company. And if you could offer current or prospective media operators, some advice to succeed in media, what would it be? I think, that staying resistant and resilient is is super important. I think visibly talking about your work and why it matters, um, you know, it takes some time to really convince people that this is is important. I look at um, some folks that I follow and, and subscribe to who are specifically talking about climate change, and I know how challenging reporting in that space is. And I think staying consistent um, and staying on message and dogged about um, about what you're building is important. Um, and you know, quickly try to find a path towards sustainability. Um, you know, not all of us. I didn't necessarily intend to turn the plug into this this company that it is today. I, I kind of just started with um, experimenting and, and kind of a labor of love and then looking at, okay, what's my quickest path to work to revenue? Um, and then how do I build that up enough and how do I drop in subscriptions and how do I experiment with this and how do I go after grants in order to make this a viable business for myself um, and for others? And and I think if you can kind of figure that out quickly and experiment quickly and, and know what works and what doesn't um, and stay resilient in that process, I think you'll do very well. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.